to our focus this morning. And these are the words of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. This is what we read. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I point you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word, for your voice spoken to us today through the music, through the, the voice of these young people who bring their talents, and through the way that your Holy Spirit meets us here and empowers us in worship and begins to shape us through praise. And we pray that you would do that now. Shape us into the very image of Christ our Lord and call us according to your will and purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bar of soap. That became a connecting image for me this week as I began to uh, put together this three-week sermon series. We're going to be in a, in a short series. And I started to think about soap. Now, if, you, um, if you've read ahead the title, you, you probably figured out where exactly this is going because I wasn't thinking of soap in the the usual way that we use it, you know, to rinse our bodies, to smell decent before we go out. I'm assuming we're all packed in together. Nobody's holding their nose. I'm assuming all of you have soap down uh, in your repertoire. But um, I was thinking about soap, but another experience of soap, and that is, well, by a show of hands, how many of you have, <laughs> yeah, I, have intimately connected with soap um, in such a way that you know what it tastes like. How many of you have tasted soap? How many of you have tasted soap because mom or dad or grandma or grandpa caught you saying, doing, or, or well, either saying or doing something you shouldn't have done and you had your mouth washed out with soap? There's a scene in a... Yeah, yeah, you have. Yes, you have, young lady. So I'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, there's a, there's a scene in, uh, I always remember, in A Christmas Story, you know, that plays every year around the holidays over and over of Ralphie with the bar of soap in his mouth, you know, for, for some of the things that he'd said. And, and to have, have our mouth washed out with soap, I remember it happening one time. I only remember one time that my, mouth, my mom washed my mouth out with soap. I don't remember what I said or what I did, but I remember the experience. Um, Tony will tell you that she had her mouth washed out with soap numerous times growing up. Numerous times. I think it was double digits is what you said to me. Um, <laughs> she just told me I'm in church. Um, Ryan and Cassie have had their mouths washed out with soap by their mother, I think. Um, and, and many of us have. A lot of times, I think in some cases, it was in their case, it was because they were lying. They 
you know, we're telling or saying something they shouldn't done. But um, for some of us, um, it was using words that, that were inappropriate. That's what we often think about. I told you I've had it happen to me once. The fact that it only happened to me once just is an indication of how many times I didn't get caught um, growing up because there were certainly more opportunities that mom or dad would have uh, taken had they seen their little darling at various moments. Um, that's what we think about, though. That's what I think about, you know, saying something again, going back to that Christmas story, the, the words, the inappropriate words. I, I came across a, an interesting connecting story this week. Um, there was a revival in Wales in about 1905, and um, it just, this religious conversion and, and um, impact of Christ just kind of overtook this, the, the, the uh, cities and towns and thousands upon thousands came to Christ and had such a profound impact on the communities. Um, taverns, bars um, started to lose money because people weren't going and spending as much. In fact, public drunkenness was cut in half. Uh, judges in the cities and towns all of a sudden found that they didn't have cases because behaviors of people improved so much. Uh, but an interesting side note to the story that I read was that the coal mines there in Wales, I think it was coal mines, the mines got adversely affected because the horses stopped working. True story, the horses stopped working, and the reason was they stopped responding to the voice commands of the, uh, the miners because they had become so accustomed to responding to the vulgarity and the profanity that was spoken that when the, the miners incorporated this new language in Christ, this new um, he began to use different words and, and more, what we'd say, appropriate words, the horses didn't recognize the commands and stopped responding. And they caused actually kind of this crisis um, with, with labor force, which is kind of a weird but funny thing um, because that's what we think about. That's what I think about. We get our mouth washed out with soap when we say um, inappropriate things. But that's not where I'm going for three weeks. We're not going to talk about the inappropriate words, at least in a crass or vulgar or profane way. I think those are pretty obvious. I don't think I need to stand up and, and do a sermon necessarily on that. We're going to talk about all the same things that we say that wouldn't necessarily cause anybody's ears to perk up, that wouldn't draw the attention or the anger or the derision of anyone else, but, but in the same way are things that, that maybe... God would look at us and say, you need a spiritual cleansing of that. Those are things that need not come out of your mouth because they're spiritually detrimental. They're emotionally detrimental. They're not true, and they're not faithful to who I've created you to be. And today, we're going to look at the words, I am only. I am only. Now, again, I wouldn't draw your attention. That wouldn't make you think twice if you heard somebody say that, but maybe it should. And I started to think about that in light of, of the young people that were up here this morning and, and knowing that they would be bringing to us some music that they wrote and, that they, and, and words and songs that, that they wrote al along with John. And, and I started to think about how impressed, surprised, um, and, and excited I was about this prospect, that they would be doing this. And, and, and I started to think about that in context a little bit, why I was so um, shocked by that. Because here's the truth. We've sang songs that John has written before. He's written a cantata for us before. And that is incredibly impressive. 
But it's not shocking. It's not surprising because if you know John, you know not only is he a gifted musician, but he um, is well-educated. Well, he went to Indiana, so he's somewhat educated. Um, sorry, sorry, that was, that was too easy. I was too easy. I couldn't stop. Um, but, but, you know, we know his talent. We know his, his, his education, the time and the years he's put into training, learning, all of those things. So it's impressive, but it's not shocking. But when he said that the youth were bringing songs that they have written, he talked about Ella's idea and, and how that generated a song, um, I was wonderfully shocked. And I started to think, why? Why was I shocked? Why am I so surprised by that? Well, it's because on this stage, or Ella, how old are you? Twelve. Okay, so from 12 years old to well, Ryan's, I don't know, 19, I'm guessing, Ryan. I don't know where you're at, but somewhere in there. But right, right in front of me. Right? Are you 19? 18. Okay, so we got 12 to 18. We've got 14, 15, 16. We've got these ages represented. But in my mind, if I'm honest, it shocked me because they're only kids, right? They're, they're only kids. And I don't mean that to dismiss them, but that's what the danger of my language does. Well, they're not as, as educated as John is. They're not as trained as other musicians are. Yet, yet how are they able to do this? Because they're only kids, Yet that's language that should not come out of my mouth. Because if the Scriptures teach us anything, God doesn't recognize the only. It doesn't, doesn't recognize. God does remarkable things through those who we may least expect it and through ourselves. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of um, the American flag that we now recognize, the, the flag with the 50 stars on it. I wasn't, but I, I came across it randomly. The story, it was, um, well, in, in 1958, a student in Ohio, I believe, by the name of Robert Heft, had a class project, 17 years old, had a class project, and, it w and he decided to design a new American flag. Now, the reason he did that was at the time there were 48 states, um, but uh, Alaska and Hawaii were being considered. So he decided to design a flag with 50 stars. His mother was horrified because she thought it was a desecration to the flag. And his teacher was not overly impressed with the project. I think at best, I've read different reports that either she gave him a low grade, at best he got a B. But uh, he wasn't real pleased with that, and he kind of challenged his teacher on the grade. And she said to him, said, well, if you think it's so good, why don't you get Washington to accept it? Well, he took that as a challenge. And he took the flag design to his um, senator, congressman, whoever, and, and presented it. And that next year, in 1959, Alaska and Hawaii were admitted into the Union. And Congress had a contest to see who could design the new flag. And lo and behold, the design that was chosen was by 17-year-old Robert Heft that didn't even get an A in his class project. <laughs> And yet that's the flag that we recognize and, and cherish today. But he was only a kid. Or a woman, um, Ethel Armstead, I believe was her name. I read about her years ago. There was an article in Reader's Digest about her. She moved, like many people, because she was um, low income. She had to move into a pretty um, crime-ridden neighborhood in an urban area. And uh, she moved into this house, and she soon realized that 
not only was uh, drugs rampant in her community, but drug dealers were literally selling them right off her front porch. And um, that was not okay with her. And so she began to lovingly but forcefully um, challenge those young men who were dealing drugs on her front porch and, and ask them to go somewhere else. She did it in such a way that it had an effect, and they did. They moved their drugs, but they just went down the street. And so she started to think, well, that, that's not good enough because I don't want this in our community. So she continued to build relationships, but she continued to challenge and push in ways that other people had gotten harassed for or had become targets for doing, but she was able to build this bridge and to challenge them not only to take the drugs out of the neighborhood, but to really to begin to do something more with their own lives. She became known as Mama to those boys, to those young men. So much so that when the winter came and the snows came, they would come and they would shovel her front porch and her walk and her driveway. She began to, to nurture the relationship. She began to do an after-school program to help tutor kids. She began to tape some of these young men, and they would go to the um, vacant lots, and they would build playgrounds, or they would revitalize playgrounds. She went to the county commission and asked them to turn some of the vacant buildings into after-school centers. She began to change the community in which she lived. She did change the community for which she lived. But she was only a single older woman. Only a kid. Only educated to this level. Only um, this. What's your only? What's your only? That, that's the challenge to begin to think about. What is it that you find yourself dismissing yourself over? What is the language in your mind sometimes that comes out of your lips that is spiritually diminishing because you consider yourself an only? I'm only. What can I do? I'm only. Well, that's what God confronts in Jeremiah. That's what happens in these early verses in the, the, the prophet's book about his own call. Because that's what we have. We have the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. We have God's call upon his life that God speaks to him, that God calls him to be this, this prophet and this messenger. And his response to God, in, in the New International Version, which I read, Jeremiah says to God, I'm only a child. Or, and I'm sorry, he says, I am too young. That was the translation there. But many of the translations read, I'm only a boy. He says to God, I'm only a boy. And God says to him, don't say that. Don't dismiss yourself. Don't negate yourself because while you may be a boy, you're not an only because I'm with you. That's the, that's the message he gives. He touches his lips, but he says, I am with you, and I'm going to give you power in spite of your youth, in spite of your inexperience, in spite of the things that you think diminish who you are or your value. I'm going to give you the power to build and tear down, to uproot and to plant. And he would become the voice of a generation, the voice of a nation. And it was a tough life. It was a tough call. It was a tough challenge. But he would remain faithful to it because he realized that he wasn't an I am only. But he had the power and the Spirit of God at work within him. And that's the same as true for us. Fred Craddock, a well-known preacher and teacher, and, and many of um, preachers and seminary students are familiar with some of his books. We read them in our education. But... Uh, Fred Craddock had a bone to pick with the phrase that we often find ourselves using, I'm only human. 
How many times have you caught yourself saying that? You make a mistake, you forget something important, you oversleep, you lose something, um, you don't do well in an assignment, you, you mess up in a relationship, whatever it is, and, and we say, well, I'm only human. I'm only human. And he says, what a misunderstanding of humanity that is. Because the scriptures tell us, Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, verse 7, that we were created just a notch below the angels themselves. That we're important enough, we're so valuable that God chose to give his son to die for us. In fact, Paul again would say in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's masterpiece, his crowning achievement. And yet we dismiss that when we say, I'm only human. In fact, what Fred Craddock says is that when we're successful, when we do something wonderful, when we impact the world, when we are faithful, obedient, our response should be, I'm human. Because to be human is to be created in the image of God. And when we dismiss that, we dismiss the one who created us. No, we're not perfect. Yes, we fall short. But our humanity is a gift because God has poured himself into that. So it's not I'm only human. It's a celebration. I am human. And that makes all the difference in the world. God has called us to be impact makers, to, to touch lives, to bless, to, to, to be more than we think we can be because we have more within us than we fully understand. That is the power of God's Holy Spirit. And we need to, to be aware of our language and sometimes have a little spiritual cleansing, if you will, a little spiritual soap on the palate to challenge ourselves to think more about who we are and who we can be. About three years ago, 2012, I guess it would be about four years ago, I was at a, a conference in Atlanta called Catalyst Conference, a big gathering of, of ministry leaders and preachers from around the country. Um, it's hosted by North Point Church, Andy Stanley, if you're familiar with Andy Stanley, a lot of big-name speakers. And I became aware of a, a very unique and, and powerful story. It started with a gentleman by the name of Scott Harrison. Scott Harrison, in um, the early part of the, the 2000s, lived in New York. He was a promoter for fashion events and special events, did well, was successful by a lot of our standards, uh, but was empty inside. Realized that he was not living as God had called him to live. He had um, kind of adapted a little bit of a lifestyle similar to maybe a prodigal son. Maybe that's a little extreme, but, but he had gotten away from his faith. And so he walked away from it all. And he signed up to be a part of a mercy ship. I don't know if you're familiar with that ministry. Some of you are. Mercy ships um, take medical need to parts of the world where, where people often don't get any medical treatment. And he happened to go as a photographer to Africa. And I think what was going to be a two- or three-week tour ended up becoming an eight-month tour. And he fell in love with the people of Africa and the needs he saw, and his heart was burdened for that. And one of the great needs he saw was for clean drinking water. There were towns and villages and peoples that just did not have access to clean drinking water, and that is a life-threatening reality. We take it for granted. It's on the tap. We turn the, turn the faucet, and there it is. And so he came back to New York, and, and he began um, to put together the framework for what would be called the outreach that's now known as Charity Water. And in the years since he started Charity Water, they have raised over $100 million. They have built over, I think, I want to say 
800 water projects around the world um, have touched the lives of thousands upon thousands upon thousands. That in itself is a powerful story, or that in itself is a powerful story, but like there often is, there's, there's more streams to it. Because in 2012, a young girl by the name of Rachel Beckwith, eight years old, I think she was seven years old at the time, uh, went to Sunday school on a Sunday morning, and she heard all about charity water. And she decided that she wanted to make a difference. She had grown her hair the year before and given that to locks of love. You know, that was the kind of heart this little girl had. And so she decided for her birthday party she didn't want presents. Now think about this from a seven, eight-year-old girl. I think, I mean, let me back up. I think she was eight at the time. But she didn't want presents. She wanted people to make a donation to Charity Water. And her goal was to raise $300. And on her birthday, she raised 280 just a little bit less than her goal. And so she decided for her next birthday she was going to set the bar higher and she was going to reach it. The tragedy of this story is she never got that chance. A few weeks after her ninth birthday, she was killed in an automobile accident. As she was clinging to life in those moments afterward, I don't know who, where, but her story was picked up. Um by a news organization, somebody became aware of this little girl and where her heart was. And in the year between what would have been her ninth and 10th birthday, in her memory, $1.26 million was raised for charity water that would go on to build 43 water projects in Ethiopia, Africa, that would change thousands upon thousands of lives, saving many lives like Rachel's. Many little girls. Now, I don't diminish the tragedy of that. But she was only a little girl. And yet, lives have been changed because of her. He was only an event promoter in New York City. But the world has been blessed because of his responsiveness to God's call upon his life and the belief that he could be more than he was through the power of the Holy Spirit. These are Christian organizations filled with people who serve in the name of Jesus, who haven't bought into the lie that I am only. Scott and, and Rachel, whose lives have blessed lives. Now, our call may not be to impact thousands upon thousands. It may be to impact one or two. But hear me say this. You are never I am only. I don't care what you finish the statement with. It's not who you are. It's not who I am. And God has a way of using people and helping them overcome their limited vision. Moses stood at the burning bush. And what did he say, God? I'm only a stutterer. You can't use me. Esther stood before Mordecai. I'm, I'm, I'm only a woman. I can't do this. Or Gideon before God. I'm, I'm the least of my tribe. I'm, I'm only at the bottom of the pecking order. The scriptures over and over and over again are filled with men and women who learn to see themselves differently, who began with an I am only mentality, but realized that there was no only to that phrase, but I am a child of God. I am empowered by the Holy Spirit. I am capable of so much more than I give myself credit for. And the truth is their story is our story. God's truth to them is God's truth to us. You are never I am only. So when those words begin to creep into your mind, 
when you begin to dismiss yourself for whatever reason, for whatever place, whatever thing you lack, take a little spiritual soap, swish it around, and spit it out because that's not who you are. That's not who you are. I am because God says I am. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your truth spoken into our lives, that you would take a boy like Jeremiah and use him to change the world. Men like Moses, women like Deborah and and Esther, so many. People like Scott Harrison and Rachel Beckwith to change the world. Help us to be agents of change and to see ourselves as you see us, to know we are loved and we are empowered by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen.